Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Let's start out by thanking our Patreon contributors. We had Serene, Evelyn, Shelby, Joanna, Christina, Emma, Mumforce, a.k.a. Gail, Dorf, Louise, Jill, Paige, Taylor Ann, Nicole, Elaine, Anastasia, Cassie, Leanna, Shane, Raphael, Kara, Nathan, Mary Jo, Caitlin, Rachel, Kathleen, Zoe, Elaine, Whip, Molly Ann, Alicia, Liz, Karen, Samantha, Paragon Tokes, Michael, Bunny Double, Shannon, Spencer, Abby, Shea, or Shay, Jody, Taylor, Christina, Kendra, Melissa, Kristen, oh, that's Kirsten, excuse me, and Jackie. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. As you know, we were off last week because I was moving. If you hear a change in the sound, it's because there's hardly any furniture in our new studio. <laughs> so hopefully by next week, the we'll have a carpet in here. Yeah. We'll have some more stuff going on. It's it'll, fine. It'll sound a little better. Um, okay. So since it's in the news right now because of the Netflix special, I thought we would finally do one of LA's most infamous crimes and one of the most famous serial killers ever, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. He had Los Angeles in a state of terror for the summer of 1985, uh, for sure. (laughs) Did you watch the Netflix special? I did. It was horrifying. I thought it was good. I thought it was well done. Um, it was an interesting because I we talked about on our mini episode yeah, the bit. last time that we both will watch anything having to do with Richard Ramirez. Right. This Netflix special, it's less about Ramirez and more about the police work angle. They focus more on the police work rather than his life. Rather than his life. Well, yeah, and they had some victims that I had not heard from Same. before. So, like the girl who was kidnapped. I had never heard her story before. No. Uh, in fact, yeah. So I thought that I thought her story was really interesting. Yeah. So anyway, um, my main source for this episode is Philip Caro's book, The Life and Cream <laughs> Creams. I'm sorry. Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. This is considered a classic of the true true crime genre. I'm pretty sure he's written a few other books as well. I also use the Netflix doc. Like I watched that for this as well as some old newspapers, etc. This will be a two-parter because there's a lot of uh, information on this case, um, obviously. So let's get started. Now, one interesting thing I read in this book when I was going through Ramirez's background, and they really go in, he goes in depth into like the background of his parents and stuff like that. Um, The family originally lived in Juarez, Mexico, which is right across the border from El Paso. Uh, Richard's dad's name is Julian. He was a Mexican citizen, and he met Richard's mom, Mercedes, in El Paso, because people were obviously just crossing the border a lot back then in that area, especially. So 
The interesting thing is that these cities had dealt with the fallout of the nuclear testing done at Los Alamos in New Mexico. I had never seen a map, so I like looked up the map. I was like, where are these like exactly located? And it's like the three borders of like Mexico, Texas, and New Mexico are right there in this little um, section where Los, I'm sorry, uh, Juarez and El Paso are. El Paso are. This was suspected to have poisoned the land and water in that area, which led to medical issues for the first two sons that Mercedes and Julian had. And some even speculated it may have contributed to the behavioral issues that all of the children had as children and uh, into adulthood. Wow. Now, the oldest son, Ruben, was born very sick. He had golf golf ball-sized lumps all over his head when he was born, but he eventually got better. Second son, Joseph, seemed fine initially, but then began nonstop crying at some point. And this was crying that was not normal. It sounded like the baby was in pain. It turned out that he had Collier's disease, which is something that causes a child's bones to curve as they (gasps) grow. So, I mean, you can imagine how agonizing that probably is. Now, in order to pay for the medical treatment, the family moved to El Paso because Julian got a job working in construction that paid very well. After a few back and forth, the family, um, they would go back to Juarez and go back and forth a few times. They finally settle in in El Paso once and for all. Julian was on his way to becoming a, a U.S. citizen, and he eventually gets a job working as a railway laborer. Mercedes then gives birth to a third son, Robert. Now, at this point, Mercedes gets a job working for a famous bootmaker named Tony Lama, but basically she is working in sweatshop conditions. It's a highly dangerous situation. There's no ventilation, and she's working with toxic chemicals because she makes the colors and dyes for these leather cowboy boots or whatever. She becomes pregnant with their only daughter, Ruth, during this period. Now, by the time she's pregnant with her fifth child, Ricardo, Richard, Ramirez, the chemicals she was exposed to began to make her body reject her fetus. She has to get multiple shots and treatments that stop her body from having contractions and going into early labor. By the time she was five months pregnant, she was told to stop working in the factory or she would lose the baby. She was certain it was a boy because he was pounding and kicking and like a real fucking like nightmare inside of her tummy so she he was a rowdy he was a rowdy fetus yeah but isn't that crazy that she's working in these chemicals that's so sad yeah so that baby obviously as i mentioned was uh named ricardo uh the family call him richie he is born on february 29th 1960 he's born on a leap year day february 29th is he a pisces uh that's a pisces i don't know but it's interesting to be born on the 29th. It is interesting to be yeah. born on a leap year. Uh, so the family, as I said, called him Richie. His father, Julian, was really buckling under the pressure at this point. They have five kids. He's working all the time. Surprise, he is prone to fits of anger that often result in physical abuse. In fact, Mercedes does note in this book or through an interview or sometime that all of her kids had explosive anger problems, even her daughter, Ruth. The more behavior issues with his older children start popping up, the more violent Julian gets. His anger is particularly focused on Ruben, the oldest son, who he finds disobedient and thinks isn't trying hard in school. So he's like furious. Now, at the age of two, Richard uh, has his first head injury. This Mm. happens (laughs) when one thing I realized during this 
process was he literally has every serial killer marker and then some. Right. Some of them he has twice. Right. Like, he has them all. And, like, including this crazy birth, like, where he was exposed to all these chemicals and, and whatever. So this happens when a he's being babysat. They have, like, a babysitter they hire. He starts to climb a dresser. The dresser falls on top of him as he climbs up it. He gets 30 stitches in his head. He has, like, a concussion, basically. But it's pretty, like, dangerous, like, Children die this way. Obviously, Julian is furious and blames the babysitter and fires her. He's just, even though this maybe was justified, he is like this with every incident that happens. Now, Richie did everything he could to escape his violent home life, but because Richie is Richard Ramirez, that means at some point he will leave his home and sleep in cemeteries to get away from his father. So, Ruben at some point really begins fucking up. He starts doing petty crimes and sniffing glue. Julian is mortified when Ruben is arrested for stealing a car and he beats the shit out of Ruben as the whole family watches in terror. Robert, Ruben, and Joseph all begin sniffing glue at some point and Mercedes begins to pray to make things better. That doesn't work. Obviously. <laughs> Poor Mercedes. Mercedes is like in the fucking church praying. But it's like, uh, yeah. I don't know if this is more disturbing than beating your kids and son, but Julian would also take his rage out on himself. One time he was unable to fix a sink. He, and so he banged himself in the head with a hammer multiple times, blood running down his face as his children watched in stunned silence. And he had other incidents like this where he couldn't do a car and he would like hit himself in the head or bang his head into a wall until he bled. Like This is like the worst home environment possible. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that was an image they said that they could never get out of their head, the hammer one. Which, right. I mean, yeah. Now, Richie is very close to his sister, Ruth, who basically treats him like her little doll. And although he didn't have behavioral issues in his early years, he did suffer another major head injury at the age of five. He was like running towards Ruth, who was on a swing set at a park, and the swing hit him in the head and like knocked him out. At the age of 10, so he's like in the fifth grade, he begins to experience grand mal epileptic seizures and is diagnosed with epilepsy. Now, although they didn't get the diagnosis until that age, Ruth said she did notice her brother um, sometimes staring into space, looking borderline comatose for years before that diagnosis. So he was probably having petite mal seizures for years before that. Now, as I mentioned, the three older brothers were all suffering from various behavioral and some developmental disabilities. All three were in a special class for children with learning disabilities taught by a man named Fred McCann. According to Ruben, his parents thought they were always going to Fred's to do work for him, but he was really, quote, sucking our cocks and getting us off. (gasps) This guy was like a serial pedophile who molested multiple boys in this neighborhood. These children never had a chance. Dude, I'm telling you, it's like one thing after the other. Now, Richard says he doesn't remember being sexually abused by Fred, but that it was possible he had buried the memory. He does say he witnessed another neighborhood pedophile rape a friend of his once, including sticking a candle inside the boy. But when the boy started screaming, Richard finally ran off. So yeah, a lot of bad shit happening. 
His three older brothers eventually leave the house, leaving just Ruth and Richie to deal with their dad's rage. But Richie soon had another male figure to look up to, his cousin Miguel Ramirez, known as Mike. Now, Mike was a decorated Green Beret combat veteran who had just come back from Vietnam. He was pretty much like welcomed as a hero. Like people were like, oh my God, this, you know, for, for, you know, obvious reasons. Now, Mike also had a lot of fucking rage issues, which he worked out in Vietnam in horrific ways. He would boast of his gruesome exploits and abuses during the Vietnam Vietnam War to Richie. He would share Polaroid photos of his victims, including um, Vietnamese women he had raped. He had Polaroids showing a woman with a gun to her head performing fellatio on him as he grinned at the camera. This is so awful. Yeah. This is stuff he's showing to Richard, like, growing up. And the next Polaroid would be Mike with the decapitated head of the woman he had just raped, uh, basically. So... Richie would later say that he used to get excited by the photos and began to jerk off while thinking of them. Mike claimed to have decapitated multiple women in Vietnam, and he had several shrunken heads he kept as mementos, telling Richie he used them as pillows in Vietnam. He also turned Richie on to pot. At the age of 10, they used to smoke pot together. And Mike also taught his young cousin some of his military skills, including guerrilla war techniques such as killing with stealth and how to kill quickly. And while most saw him as a hero, Mike's wife, Jessie, was annoyed that her husband just talked about war crimes and got high while hanging out with a kid all day. Someone married this guy? Dude. Yeah, he has a wife this, and kids. This guy's a war criminal piece of shit. Yeah, he is awful. Like, it's kind of shocking he didn't do what Richard did. As well, I mean, maybe. He well, did. he did in Vietnam. <laughs> in Vietnam, he yeah, did. But like here, he didn't continue it. Here is like crazy to me. Yeah, because this guy's clearly a serial killer. I mean, it makes me wonder: was part of it not true? But like, I, you know what I mean? Like, was he just? I mean, bragging about that is sick too. But like, what the hell was going on there? Now, Mike would eventually get fed up with his wife's nagging. On May 4th, 1973, Richie was at Mike's house when he noticed there was a gun in the fridge. He asked Mike why, and Mike said he wanted to have it cold in case he needed to use it. I don't even know what that means. When wife Jesse came home from shopping, he got his chance. They began to argue, and Mike got the gun out of the fridge. Jesse laughed and dared her husband to do it. He raised the gun to her face, point blank, shot her in the face, and <gasps> killed her, while his two kids and Richie were sitting right there. He told Richie to get out of there and say nothing. Richie's family... So he, like, goes home and doesn't say anything to his family. But his family's like, why is Richie all withdrawn and acting so, like, sullen and quiet? Uh, Mike was eventually arrested and went to jail. At some point, Julian and Richie go back to the murder scene to collect some items for Mike. And it was during this trip that Richie would later say he kind of had an epiphany, saying that he... Seeing the scene and going through her stuff felt almost like a religious experience to him. He actually said he felt tingly as he emptied out her purse and got to go through her stuff. He described it as feeling connected, like he owned a part of her now. Mike pled not guilty by reason of sanity, um, blaming insanity, by reason of insanity, blaming the trauma he suffered in Vietnam for his rage. Well, it sounds like he really liked what he was doing in Vietnam. Yeah. Well, he used it for an excuse here, and the jury bought it. He is committed to a state mental institution rather than going to prison. Richie sinks into a depression after Mike gets sent off to prison. 
In order to cheer Richie up, his parents sent him to stay with his brother Reuben, who was now living in L.A., Unfortunately, they didn't realize Ruben was now addicted to heroin and was hanging out in the seediest part of LA with other addicts and thieves. He was now a full-time burglar and quickly got Richie in on the thrill of getting shit for free instead of working. Richie was also enamored by the easy access to sex workers and pornography in LA and spent a lot of time going to X-rated movie theaters. When he got back from LA, he knew that the life he wanted was what Ruben had. He basically all but officially dropped out of high school at that point and began focusing on his interest, which included hunting. He loved sneaking up on birds and coyotes and other animals and killing them. He also got very into horror movies and began going to Jehovah's Witness classes with a friend where he first learned about the power of Satan. Like the exact opposite, I'm sure, of what those lessons were. <laughs> like, I'm sure the lessons were like, don't fall for the power of Satan. He's like, who's Satan? <laughs> like, seriously. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So when Richie's back from L.A., things at home were worse than ever. Ruth had got out of the home by marrying a man named Roberto, and eventually Richie moves in with them. Now here we get another bad role model. <laughs> Turns out Roberto was what Ruth described as oversexed. She had to fuck him every day or he would not leave her alone. So making things even worse, after he would fuck her, he still wasn't satiated, and he would start walking the neighborhood looking for naked women or people fucking in the windows to get off further. Wait, Roberto is Richard's brother? It's his brother-in-law. It's Ruth's husband. Okay. I just was confused because they he all the kids have... Well, all the kids have our names. <laughs> yeah. He 
quickly makes Richie his peeping Tom partner in crime. So they go out together looking in people's windows. Like, so Richie now is like, you know, not even 15, like uh, sick. So, and like, as I mentioned earlier, he really had top tier serial killer training throughout his life. It's like every element of his crimes can be seen throughout his childhood. Well, peeping Toms, we hear a lot about how serial killers sometimes in their childhood, they start as peeping Toms. Oh, totally. Now, he also begins using LSD, and he starts becoming very interested in metal music, particularly ACDC. Roberto eventually gets the booth when Ruth finds out he's being a creep and taking her brother along with him, but Richie continues peeping Tom, being a peeping Tom after Roberto leaves, leveling up by entering homes and staring at people as they sleep. Oh, that's the creepiest thing ever. That's like everyone's worst nightmare, right? Yeah. Is like, being stared at while you're sleeping. And not knowing, and but not- then finding out later oh. it's been happening. You can never recover. No. Ruth would later say, my brother never slept. He was up all night, all the time. Now, Richie eventually gets a job at a local Holiday Inn, and he almost immediately gets in trouble because he's in an elevator one day with the daughter of a guest, and he tells her how pretty she is. <laughs> stares at her creepily. He's reprimanded and told not to flirt with guests. You know he didn't say this in a normal way. Either. It must have been so abnormal. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think he was also staring at her a while before saying anything. I mean, just a nightmare. Three months after starting, he gets access to a master key, which allows him to enter every room. No. He immediately begins robbing rooms, entering, entering them after people are asleep, laying down low and crawling around on the floor, stealing items, sometimes entering while a woman is in the shower and then hiding, watching her come out and get dressed. <sighs> he finally escalates that and attempts to rape a guest. Luckily for her, what Richard didn't know was that her husband had just stepped out to get some food. In the book, she described, and she's like, I knew my big Mexican husband was coming back in like minutes. I hope- so it kind of kept her a little bit calm. Did he beat his ass? Yes. The husband walked in and beat the shit out of Richie. She, he didn't get very far with the woman. Like She said that she actually like didn't fight that much because she's like, I know my husband's coming back. So she kind of was like, okay, okay, I'm getting like, you know. So he comes in before anything really happens, beats the shit out of Richie. Obviously, Richie is fired and arrested. Richie tells his mom and Ruth that the woman invited him in and the husband was mad because he found his wife cheating. They believe him. The parents believe him? The mom and Ruth believe him. Oi. They're like, Richie, (laughs) you poor thing. Uh, Yeah. So making matters even worse, Cousin Mike gets released from the mental institution in 1977 after four years of incarceration. Him and Richie pick up right where they had left off. Richard was now a complete loner and only spent time with Mike, who was preparing him for life in the real world. Richard was now an expert thief. Um, He had been known around El Paso as dedos or fingers because he literally would take anything that wasn't nailed down like he just fucking stole everything richard dreamed of moving back to la he literally would fantasize about all the wealthy people he could steal from there and how the sprawling landscape full of multiple neighborhoods and easy freeway access would make his pillaging so easy At the age of 18, he finally moves to California, where he settles permanently. He was not the healthiest of individuals, living mostly off of convenience store food, which actually sent me over the edge, because I once knew a guy who would get the burgers from (laughs) (laughs) A.M.P.M. I don't know 
why I was like, how dare you eat that in front of me? At least get the hot dogs. Yeah, for some get reason, the ho- hot dogs I accept at, at a low, like... hot. For some reason, the hot dog at 7-Eleven, I'm like, yeah, you get the hot dog there. You don't get the burger. The burger is like... It's just, I can't. His teeth are also completely rotted out. Like he's 18 years old and his teeth are rotted out. He's very well known for his like off the charts halitosis too. And that will come in to his crimes. He made his home on Skid Row, got heavily into drugs and lived the life of a low level criminal. He moved around to various flop houses and skeezy hotels, including the Cecil Hotel. Uh, yeah. He uh, famously lived there for a brief time. He even moved in with Brother Ruben at some point, but they didn't get along too much as roommates, and he left there. After his first year in L.A., he was extremely addicted to cocaine, especially mainlining it. His interest in Satan grew as the drugs made him feel even more and more powerful. He basically robbed, got high, listened to metal. Uh, Now, in addition to ACDC, he was into Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Dio. He had a $1,500 a week cocaine habit that he paid for with more and more robberies, basically. Look, I partied with a lot of guys who all they did was get high and listen to metal, and some of them were really nice people. I think that you can be nice and listen to metal. (laughs) (laughs) But metal is a big part of this guy's It's his identity. It's his identity. And it it comes into play as evidence in these cases as well. Right, right. So... He had recently added car theft to his repertoire and began spending his nights driving all the freeways, learning how to navigate them like a pro. He got into angel dust at this point and eventually raped a woman that he lured in with drugs. And this was sort of the beginning of his MO a bit. Before she kicked him out of the apartment, he had unlocked a window. He went back later that night, climbed through the window he had left unlocked as she slept, watching her sleep before raping her. Now, this was his first, I mean, I hate to use this word, successful rape, and he left exhilarated. Like, he was absolutely over the moon about this. The same week he bought and read The Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, almost immediately after finishing, he stole a car and drove to San Francisco to meet LaVey, who recalled him as being very nice and very shy. He added, I liked him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Anton. Now, Richard drives back to L.A. where he becomes more obsessed with drugs, Staten, and robbing. His family has completely lost touch with him at this point and are so worried that they send Ruth to go to L.A. to check on him. I just want to point out, I just noticed that Desi is currently wearing a sweatshirt that says ACDC oh, on it. Oh, I didn't even realize. <laughs> just my slobby sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah, who am I to fucking talk? <laughs> You're, Wait a minute. Desi is literally back in black right now. <laughs> Uh, so Ruth goes to LA to find him and she's shocked when she finally meets him at a downtown LA bus terminal. Imagine having someone come to visit you in LA and you're like, meet me at the bus terminal. He, his physical decline was shocking to Ruth. Like he looks bad at this point and he's a young guy, but she said what she noticed most about him was his eyes, which now seemed black and hardened. She went back to his CD motel with him, with him where he blasted highway to hell while telling his sister about how Satan had saved his life. That must have been a great fucking like moment for Ruth. Poor fucking Ruth. Like, Think about, like, one of the things about Richard Ramirez, he was such a fucking tryhard with his whole persona. Ugh, it's just so insufferable. He's like, so obnoxious. He's really obnoxious. And you're right. It's like 
that's what I was thinking when I watched the documentary and I was just like, he's such a poser Satanist. Like all of that was so over the top for yeah. show to yeah. me. Like he's obviously an evil guy. Right. But the Satanism always just was like for show to me. It's because he wanted to be like, you, do you get it? I'm evil. Look, I was 15. I'm, I'm definitely, I remember putting out a picture of Anton LaVey in my house just to make my mom be like, are you okay? <laughs> Just because it was like cool. It was like, yeah, look at me. I like the church of Satan. So I'm still a good person. (laughs) Um, So she tries to convince him to come home and he refuses. She goes back to El Paso and tells her parents what she's found and they pray for change, which obviously we all know did not work because he would make his first kill less than a year later. Now, on June 28th, 1984, Richard gets high on cocaine and goes out at night to commit some robberies. After staking out a Glassell Park um, apartment building, he decides to enter the apartment of 79-year-old Jenny Vincal. He becomes infuriated as he looks through her place and realizes that the woman has nothing of value. He starts to stare at her sleeping body. Consumed with rage, he becomes turned on by what he could take. The only thing she had left of value, her life. He stabs Jenny repeatedly while she's basically asleep in her bed and slashes her throat so deeply that she's nearly decapitated. Then he did what would become a custom for him. He hangs out in the home post-murder, having having some refreshments, soaking in like what he had just done. He wanted to do everything he possibly could to disrespect the person that he had just murdered. Right. When he would hang out in their house afterwards, eat like their it's food. Mine now. Yeah. yeah. It was just like, it was kind of reminds me of like what he did with the purse, like going through that woman's stuff after she left. It's like, I own everything here now. Like, he wants to do everything he possibly can to violate this person, even in death. Right. It's sick. He leaves, he hangs out there till 5 a.m. And wow. he finally leaves. At 1 p.m. the next afternoon, Jenny's son showed up with his mother's favorite lunch, Chicken McNuggets. I thought that was so sad. Aww. And he finds his mother's body. That is so sad. No, it's really sad. Now, homicide, homicide detectives arrive on the scene. They do find a fingerprint on a mesh screen that Ramirez removed to gain access to the open window. But they need a suspect to compare it to, which is incredibly difficult back then. Like, they didn't have these databases like they do now. And if Richard wasn't on file, do you know what I mean? It was like, you have this evidence. So obviously the evidence is still, is still there, but this case goes cold at that point. Richard would spend the rest of 84 and the first few months of 85 getting deeper into his addictions, but he hadn't murdered anyone since Jenny. Uh, but on March 17th, 1985, Richard decides he needs more of what he felt that night. He buys a 22 caliber gun from some dirt bag, steals a car, and goes hunting for the only thing that got him higher than Coke, killing. He drives the streets of LA in his ACDC hat, hat blasting highway to hell looking for a victim. He finally spots 22-year-old Maria Hernandez, who's driving home from her boyfriend's, and follows her home to her Rosemead apartment where she lives with her 34-year-old roommate, Dale Okazaki. She pulls into her garage, and as she hits the button closing the door, Ramirez ducks underneath the garage <gasps> door, and he loses his ACDC hat as he does this. He walks straight up to Maria, points the gun in her face, and she has just a second to hold her hands up to her face before he shoots. 
the bullet actually ricochets off of her keys that she still has in her hands, and she collapses and plays dead. Now, the roommate who is inside the house hears the gunshot, obviously. She ducks down behind a counter in their kitchen when she sees Ramirez enter you know, through the garage door uh, entrance. She stays hidden, but Ramirez saw her duck. Mm. So he just waits there for her to get up again. And at some point she does slowly poke her head up to look and he shoots her instantly in the head. This is in the documentary and it's so, it's, it's so tragic. It's so fucking tragic. And it's so scary because you can imagine it's something you can imagine doing. Oh yeah. Like that's the thing I always think about when do you know it's safe to come up or come out right. in those situations. And right. it's like a split second could be the difference. Right. Uh, it's so fucking scary. Now, at this point, Maria had gone around to the front door of the apartment to help her roommate, thinking that Ramirez would have left the same way that he came in. But he's running out the front door as Maria's there. I mean, they're both so shocked by seeing each other that she begs him not to shoot shoot her again. And he basically scurries off into the night because he's also kind of stunned. He had never done something like this before. I remember her interview in the documentary and just thinking she made a very bold split second decision in that moment that could have gone either way. Dude, when someone's life is saved by their keys, I'm always like, shit. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't even know that that's possible for a bullet to ricochet like that. Of such a small object. Oh my God. So... Obviously, he leaves this scene still very wound up and gets on the freeway to a nearby town called Monterey Park. Um, At this point, he starts following a 30-year-old woman named Veronica Yu. At some point, she realizes that he's following her and starts following him. Like, she gets behind him and starts following him. She's trying to find a police car. She's driving. Like, he gets to a red light and stops his car and gets out to confront her. She yells at him, asking why he's following her. And he's like, I'm not following you. He actually, at that point, tries to pull her out of her her car door, but she locks it. And then he starts to go around to the passenger passenger side door, which she um, tries to reach across and lock at that point as well. But it's too late. He enters (gasps) the car, shoots her as she's now trying to exit her driver's side door. She's on the ground, bleeding out and screaming for help. Richard calls her a bitch, gets back into his car, and leaves. People witness this, by the way, so that's how you have this information. That must be horrible to see. (laughs) Jesus Christ. It's so awful. Now, all of this is happening while homicide detectives are at the Hernandez-Okasaki crime scene. Veronica is pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. So... Gil Carrillo, who at this point is the youngest sheriff's deputy, I'm sorry, sheriff's homicide detective, gets the call for the um, Hernandez Okasaki case. He speaks to Maria Hernandez in the hospital and is immediately baffled by what the motive was. In the documentary, it's also mentioned that he knew Maria's mom, like they grew up together. So robbery is kind of ruled out because nothing was stolen. There's no love triangle or crime of passion evidence here. But Carrillo had taken a course at some point uh, about investigating sex crimes from a top behavioral science expert from Quantico, and he immediately recalled how he had learned that for some serial murderers, the act of killing was itself sexual. He thought that this might be a person who got off on killing even when assault wasn't a part of the crime. 
When he heard about Veronica Yu being killed, he was almost certain it was the same guy. He began to strongly believe he might have a serial killer on his hands, and at that point, he reached out to LA's most formidable homicide investigator at the time, famous for solving the Hillside Strangler case, Detective Frank Salerno. Now, you probably know about him. Of course. I remember we, I mean, (laughs) I did that case. We did a long time ago a two-parter on the Hillside Stranglers, and Salerno was the guy who, he was the one who figured out it was two people committing these crimes. You should listen to that two-parter of our Hillside Strangler episode if you haven't. It's probably, we recorded it back in 2018. Yeah. Uh, So Salerno agrees to work the case with Carrillo, but other than one perp who turned out to just be a creep, nothing was popping up. So all they could do was kind of wait helplessly for another crime to take place to get more evidence, which is like the worst fucking thing because it's like you don't want anything else to happen. But yeah. It's like the only way you would find out who this fucking guy is. So there's a lot they don't know right now. But what they really had no idea of was the fact that this was only the beginning of one of the most terrifying crime sprees in all of history. On March 27th, 1985, Ramirez enters a home that he had burglarized a year earlier just outside of Whittier, California. At approximately 2 a.m., he shoots sleeping Vincent Zazara, who was 64 years old, with a gunshot to his head from a 22 caliber handgun. Zazara's wife, Maxine, age 44, awakens from the gunshot. Ramirez beats her up and binds her hands while demanding to know where her valuables are. While he ransacks the room, Maxine gets out of her hand bonds and retrieves a shotgun from under the bed. She puts the shotgun up to Ramirez and shoots, and the gun is not loaded. (gasps) That infuriates Richard. Now, apparently, she didn't know that her husband had taken the bullets out of the gun when their grandchildren were over, or some children were over. Dude, that is like fucking a nightmare. So... This infuriates him. He shoots her three times with a twenty-two, and then doesn't stop there. He gets a knife from the kitchen and decides that he will mutilate her body. Actually tries to cut her heart out, but he does gouge out her eyes, places them in a jewelry box, and takes them with him. He then stabs her post-mortem in like a clearly brutal way because he's so enraged that she dared to fight back or go against him. After he leaves the home, he immediately goes to a fence and sells the jewelry he had stolen. Then he hires a sex worker for oral sex and feet play before going back to his rat-infested Cecil hotel room where he admires his trophy, Maxine's eyes. Vincent and Maxine's bodies are discovered the next day by one of their employees. They have like a pizza restaurant and the homicide detectives get some more clues. Now, Ramirez had used a box to climb into an unlocked window, but when he stepped out, he left a perfect footprint in the damp soil of the flower beds. It was determined to be from an Avia sneaker, which the police photographed and cast. Detectives on Zazera's case did not tell anyone in the LA Sheriff's Department about the fact that they had a similar crime. Salerno told Carrillo after hearing it through the grapevine, uh, and then they kind of like looked into more things. Uh, like that the bullets were very similar, but it, it it was like they were similar, but they can't be a perfect match, but they're also not ruled out, like one of those type of things. Now, as we get into a lot of the next crimes, we're going to see why it was so hard to capture Richard Ramirez. First of all, his victims did not fit a pattern. They were all over L.A. Um, there was multiple different um, ways he did things. They weren't all gunshot wounds. Some of them are stabbing. Some of them are, you know, there's other things he uses later on. Also, he's crossing multiple legal jurisdictions. 
And these fucking cops, like we've seen this before in other cases, they do not fucking talk to each other. It's it, a huge fucking pissing match. Um, the egos. The egos cause so much... It's crazy. ...problems. When you're reading it, you're like, who fucking cares? Like, what credit are you getting? Like, well, every cop wants to be like, I want to be the one to track this case. Like, who cares? Someone's... People are being murdered, you fucking idiots. It's it's really unbelievable. Like, So these pissing matches will come into play uh, in the next cases I'll talk about. And it's just really fucking irritating because it's like it doesn't matter ultimately uh i don't know and on top of it i think we mentioned this briefly in our mini when we talked about watching the documentary on richard ramirez one of the things that was so horrifying about him was that he didn't have an mo like most serial killers right he didn't have a specific gender or a specific race or anyone could have been his victim he targeted everyone now Carrillo is pretty certain he has a serial killer on his hands, but none of the te- detectives on these other cases agree with him. They're like, no, this isn't you. Like, uh, He also comes to find out about a series of abductions and sexual assaults in the area. That's the woman who was abducted by him when she was like eight, I think. So these also are things that, that Carrillo thinks sort of match... Um, his his killer or the guy he thinks is doing this, including some descriptions that um, these girls have made about their abductor that mention the bad halitosis. Like right. They all mention the guy is sort of thin and black clothing and the bad halitosis comes up uh, a lot. Again, something that's so remarkable that Carrillo would think to piece together kidnappings and assaults of young girls with these murders of adults. Right. And I think, uh, I mean, I was thinking about like, yeah, it's like one of those things where they look great after the fact. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if he had done this and then nothing tied together, would everyone be like, see, it's the boy who cried wolf. Like, right. It is like a lot of luck in these kind of cases too, but obviously you want someone diligent and at least fucking looking into it. Right. What does it hurt? Now they also, it was great that he looked into this, though, because they did find in one of the cases, the perp had left a shoe print in wet cement, and Carrillo was like, I know that this is going to be the same fucking shoe print. He left the shoe print on one of the assault and kidnappings. Yes. There was a there was like evidence in one of those cases that obviously could be used to tie it together. So now Richard has some money from these stolen goods he got from the Zazera murders, so he kind of lays low for a little bit. In the book, I just had to like take a. They like sort of give us a little bit of his life during these this time period after the Zazera murders, and one of them is that he tried to make some money hustling pool, and doesn't that doesn't go well. So he goes to the Cameo Theater on Broadway, which shows porno movies twenty four hours a day, and the writer wrote. There the killer sat in the musty, semen-laden dark and watched the huge genitals on screen being pushed, prodded, probed, licked, and sucked. (laughs) Sorry. I just had to share that snippet because I was like, dude, calm the fuck down. (laughs) Like, did you think that was some, like, prose? (laughs) I like pushed. We know what porn is, dude. Yeah. You don't need to explain it. (laughs) The semen-laden. Oh, my God. Okay. So on April 14th, 1985, Ramirez returns to Monterey Park and enters the home of Bill Doy, who is 66 years old, and his disabled disabled wife, Lillian, who is 56. 
They're obviously sleeping. Uh, he surprises um, Bill in the bed, shoots him in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol as Doy was going for his own handgun that he kept by his bed. He basically beats this man into unconsciousness, uh, leaves him there, and enters Lillian's bedroom. She's in a separate bedroom. She had recently had a stroke. So she's in a hospital bed in a separate bedroom. He shot Doy in the face and beat him? Yes, he shoots him in the face, then beats him. I think because he had tried to get his gun, and that obviously enrages Richard that people would try to defend their lives, I guess. So <laughs> like, the gunshot wound to the face didn't kill him? No, and there, there's more to that. Oh. So there's more coming. Now, he leaves, he leaves uh, him there and goes into Lillian's bedroom, binds her with thumb cuffs, uh, he says to her, shut up, bitch, or I'll kill you, which is something he says a lot to a lot of people and will be used to identify him later. He rapes this woman after he ransacks the home for valuables. What he doesn't know is that while he is raping Lillian, Bill is still alive and manages to call 911 before he dies. So he basically saves his wife's life. That is his last act, which is obviously incredible. She does survive because Richard at some point leaves because um, police are arriving. While investigating the Doi crime scene, someone anonymously calls Gil Carrillo. Like these police are like going out of their way to not call him basically on any case that's remotely similar. So someone anonymously does this. So the, you're saying the, pol- the police department didn't wanted Carrillo to be involved as little as possible to not go down any rabbit holes. Yes, every police depo- department at this point is actively not calling him. This is so fucked. It's not like he's calling them and they're like, no, stay out of it. They're like, don't fucking call Carrillo. So someone anonymously is like, hey, there's a case. Like someone anonymously calls Gail Carrillo. He shows up to the crime scene, is treated by sh- like shit by all the detectives who are there. Salerno shows up and he's also rebuffed, which is like a little more unusual because he had such a great reputation. Um, But what they didn't know was that an Avia shoe print was found outside the point of entry at the Doy house as well. So they don't even get this information at this point. On the night of May 29th, 1985, Ramirez drives a stolen car to Monrovia and goes to the house of Mabel Ma Bell, who is 83 years old, and her disabled sister, Florence Nettie Lang, who is 81 years old. Upon entering the house, he finds a hammer in the kitchen, which he uses to bludgeon Lang after he binds her in her bedroom. Then he binds and bludgeons Bell before using an electrical cord from an old lamp to shock the woman with. It's something that he learned from his sick fucking cousin, Mike. He then rapes the 81-year-old Nettie Lang and uses Bell's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her thigh as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. He once again makes himself at home and eats a banana, drinks a Coke, and leaves a huge gross piss in the toilet. I can just picture that piss. I just know it's so gross. It's very concentrated. Fuck him. He leaves Ma Bell and Nettie laying there. They're alive, but comatose in their home. He then uh, goes on to his next home and his next victims. On May 30th, he drives to Burbank and sneaks into the home of Carol Kyle, who is 42. At gunpoint, he binds her and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs and ransacks their house. He releases Kyle to direct him to the family's valuables, and then he rapes her repeatedly. He also repeatedly orders her not to look at him, telling her at one point that he would cut her eyes out if she did. 
He flees the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and, and putting them two together in the closet with handcuffs. Romero, I'm sorry, Ramirez tells her that she was not bad sexually considering her age. And she thanks him because she's desperate to not enrage him. She is actually like a psychiatric nurse. Interesting. So she, she kind of like plays up with him, like, thank you. Like she knows to try not to enrage him. Um, she later will describe him as being absolutely demonic, having eyes that she had never seen before on a human being. Um, she, this woman, she, she's the one who drive, who drew, who like did one of the, um, famous sketches, like one of the ones you've probably seen before. She drew that? Not drew it, but whatever. Oh, she told described, them described okay. it. Like there's a few of them and I, quite uh, frankly, none of them look like Richard Ramirez to me. They all kind of look older cause he's quite young. Yes. It's only like 24 or 25 when this is happening. Uh, I don't know. Did you think they look like him? I mean, they're kind of, but not exactly. It kind of looks like him, but it, it kind of looks like, yeah, he looks Someone older. Someone I saw described it, one of them looking like Joe Piscopo. Yeah, kind of does. Or Reed or something. Yeah. <laughs> one of them does kind of look like. Because one of them has really curly hair and he didn't have curly hair. No, it was more wavy. Yeah. So, but once again, it's like, a man in black who is sexually assaulting, robbing a woman. It's very clear that this case could be similar, but no one contacts Carrillo or Salerno. It's like the whole thing about police jurisdictions that drives me nuts about them not communicating with each other is that it basically, they operate under the assumption that a serial killer or a serial rapist will only commit crimes in one town. Especially in LA. Dude. I mean... (laughs) I guess this is the 80s. Maybe we know better now. I don't know. But it's just like, I think the weird thing is sometimes it's like, did they really think that it wasn't possible? Because they just had the Hillside Strangler case. Well, yeah. And that was like over a few few areas, right? It was like Glendale and Hollywood or Desi, something. Desi, we've done at least three different LA freeway killer cases. Right. And all of them were 70s too. Yes. And the freeway killer cases took place in multiple parts of LA County. Right. So it's not like this is something that even hasn't happened before. Uh, it's crazy. So the next day, Ma Bell and Nettie are found by a gardener who is concerned about the women. They're both alive, but barely clinging to life. Carrillo once again goes to the scene, but this time he seems to think it's not his guy. There was no knife. There was no gun. There was no footprint. The pentagrams and Satan bullshit is new too. So he's kind of like, this is where they're starting to figure out, like, does this guy have a, a steady MO? Like, it's confusing to them, but obviously they'd still keep it on their radar. A sad note is that Mab- Mabel's children and grandchildren had been begging her to lock her door, but she refused wanting to see the good in people. And Ramirez literally walked right in their door, like nothing oh. was locked. In early June, Richard makes a huge mistake. He tries to break in the home of a police officer who woke up while he was doing that and scared Richard off. A deputy on the scene saw a footprint in the dirt and like a, it was kind of a snowy on the, there was like some snow on the ground. And he called Carrillo, I'm sorry, Carrillo, who told him to protect the print with his life. Luckily, this deputy had taken a crime scene class that Carrillo had taught and saved the print like perfection. Like, like perfection. So when Carrillo showed up, he was able to get a perfect imprint, another Avia uh, shoe, the same shoe. The police officer, 
knew he and his wife had a close call too. So that was like really frightening that it was the same guy. Richard left frustrated after this botched kill and drove to Eagle Rock where he got sloppy and tried to abduct a girl right off the street. She got away and a witness called 911. While escaping, he runs a red light and gets pulled over. Now, the kidnapping is going off on the radio while this cop is talking to Richard, and it's like basically describing Richard. Richard's in a stolen vehicle. The cop at some point actually jokes with him, like, hey, you're not the guy who's been killing people in their homes, are you? Ugh. And Richard says, yeah, when are you guys going to catch that motherfucker? So this is like a conversation that happens while the cop is like filling out paperwork and whatever he's doing. At some point, Richard draws a pentagram on the hood of the car and takes off on the f- on foot while the officer is like looking down. Are you like, serious? Yes. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's so stupid. It's so crazy. So on the night of July 2nd, 1985. Oh, by the way, that car gets impounded, but no one says, hey, this might be uh, something you want to <laughs> fingerprint <laughs> or anything that there's a big pentagram like on this a guy car? just left the scene where i pulled him over and so they just impound this car and no one says anything to any department <laughs> or anything so on july 2nd 1985 ramirez drives a stolen car to arcadia randomly selects the house of mary louise cannon who is a 75 widow 75 year old widowed grandmother after entering her home he finds her asleep bludgeons her into unconsciousness with a lamp and then stabs her with a butcher knife from her own kitchen. She is found dead at the scene by her neighbors. This time, by luck of the draw, Carrillo and Salerno are on this case and they're officially partners now, by the way. They were kind of working together informally before. They instantly notice similarities between Cannon's wounds and another woman, Patty Higgins, who had been found a few weeks earlier. Salerno was now fully on board that there was a serial killer on the loose and was possibly even more dangerous than the Hillside Stranglers. Once Salerno was fully on board, everyone started kind of coming on board at that point. Richard was fully aware now that detectives were looking for him. He began altering his appearance with glasses. He was now being called the Valley Intruder and the Walking Killer, but he decided to change up location once again and headed to the foothills in Sierra Madre. On July 5th, 1985, he breaks into a Sierra Madre home and bludgeons a 16-year-old girl named Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she sleeps in her bedroom. Her parents sleeping in the same house, by the way, like... After the um, Richard goes to the kitchen, searches for a knife, he can't find one. He then attempts to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. He says that he is startled when electrical sparks emanate from the cord and the victim seems like she wakes up from unconsciousness at that point. He flees the house believing that Jesus had intervened and saved her and like panicked and ran out of the house. Oh my God. Isn't that crazy? Uh, So she survives, but has to get 478 stitches to close the wounds in her head. Holy shit. He beat the shit out of her with a tire iron, like crazy. Now, of course, he was all amped up after he left there, went to downtown LA to find a sex worker. But when he asked if he could fuck her feet, she laughed at him and he pushed her out of the car. Oh. I don't know who that woman is, but it's like, you're a queen. Yeah. Oh. Like, I like that you made him. I'm glad you kink shamed him. I'm sorry. Yeah. Normally I'm against that, but with him, fuck it's him. It's fine. 
I'm glad she survived. I just like to picture her being pushed out of the car and be like, hey, it's the big idea, you freak. <laughs> so Carrillo and Salerno went to investigate. They were certain it was their guy once again, but no hard evidence was found at first. Then someone else on the scene came to them with a blanket. On the blanket was a perfect footprint that was in blood of an Avia sneaker. It was him again. They also finally found out about Carol Kyle, the woman who he raped with the son. He, um, she drew another sketch for them, saying that she didn't like the first one that she drew. I'm not she drew that she um, had them draw, and she was much happier with the second one, saying that it looked much more similar to uh, her um, assaulter. I don't know what the word is. Attacker. <laughs> the attacker. Thank you. And that sketch looked very similar to the one that Maria Hernandez had done back in the day. Um, so on July 7th, 1985, he, Rich Ramirez burglarizes the home of Joyce Nelson, who is 61 in Monterey Park again. He finds her asleep and beats her to death using his fist and kicking her in the head. He wasn't finished there. He cruises to a few other neighborhoods close by before returning to Monterey Park going to the home of Sophie Dickman, who is 63. He assaults her, handcuffs her, attempts to rape her, steals her jewelry, has her swear to Satan that she's not lying to him about stuff of value because she says, I swear to God, I don't have anything. He's like, no, swear to Satan, which is something he'll do a few other times. She's also a psychiatric nurse and had a lot of experience dealing with psychopaths. So he tries to sexually assault her but loses his erection and she's kind of like not she's like it's okay like that kind of stuff like once again trying not to further enrage him he lets her live and sometimes when he lets people live he's like i'm letting you live like i've killed before like you're lucky and then she does the thing where she has to wait to see if he's gone before going to help she goes to her neighbor who is a I think a deputy, uh, and she's like, help me, help me. She calls Carrillo to the scene um, because they are friends somehow because the detectives on the scene, of course, don't call Carrillo or Salerno, even at this point. Now, he goes to Dickman's home, uh, gets the runaround there by the police who are on the scene or the detectives who are on the scene, and then he gets a call about um, the first case, Joyce Nelson. Now, Joyce Nelson was in this same night? Yes, this she, is the same day. She is also in Monterey Park? Yes. Okay. So I, I mentioned that he had kicked her in the head. He had left a shoe print on her face <gasps> of an Avia sneaker. So he actually left that evidence on her to face. To leave a print on someone's face is crazy. Yeah, so Gil arrives at her house and the press are there. Now this is like becoming a huge story. A good piece of news that the people investigating this get is they finally have some numbers on the Avia shoes. Only six pairs of this particular shoe had been sold in LA and only one of them were a size 11 and a half. So this is a very specific shoe that they know if they find the guy with this shoe, that's the fucking guy. So... By this point, the Night Stalker officially has L.A. in a state of panic. He's now being called the Night Stalker. People are buying guns. They're taking self-defense training. They're getting guard dogs. Like, L.A. is, like, on lockdown. Some people are even leaving town at this point. All this time, Carrillo had been trying to get access to that car that Richard had abandoned in Eagle Rock. 
Um, they finally get access to this car to dust for fingerprints. The person who had stolen the car also had left things of his inside the car, including a dentist car with an appointment for July 3rd. So if they had had access to that car sooner, they could have potentially caught him when he showed up at the dentist's office. Now, this dentist agrees to let the police stake out his office since Richard's teeth were so disgusting. The dentist was was like, oh, he'll be back <laughs> because he has like an abscess. Like he is in pain. It's not just that they're fucking rotting and disgusting. Disgusting. Uh, he. They also find out that he is using the name Richard Mina for this appointment. So that's a possible alternative uh, name he's using. On July 17th, Ma Bell finally dies from uh, her injuries from the May 29th attack on her. On July 20th, 1985, Ramirez decides he wants to give everyone a real spectacle. He purchases a machete and plans to cut off the heads of his next victims, leave them on the front lawn waiting for police so when they arrive, they know exactly what kind of monster they're dealing with. He chooses the home of Glendale, I'm sorry, he chooses the Glendale home of Leela Needing, who is 66, and her husband Max, who is 68. They had been following his story as many people had and had all their windows and doors locked, but Richard managed to cut the screen from a French door and open it. According to Ramirez, he turned on the lights as the couple slept and um, screamed, rise and shine, motherfuckers, before hitting them with a machete. But the machete he bought was not sharp enough to behead them, so he kills them with the um, handgun. He mutilates their bodies further before robbing their house uh, and taking whatever he could of value. Still not done for the, the night, he drives to Sun Valley. At approximately 4.15 a.m., he breaks into the home of um, the Kovanoff family. He shoots the sleeping Chiana Rong Kovanoff in the head with a 25 caliber handgun, killing him instantly, then repeatedly rapes and beats Somkid Kovanov. He binds the couple's eight-year-old son before dragging Somkid around the house to reveal locations of valuable items, which he steals. During the assault, he once again demands that she not swear to God that she swears to Satan, that she is not hiding any money from him. She also describes his eyes being like that of an animal. Um, But once again, this attack is not reported as being possibly the Night Stalker, like, which seems pretty clear cut to me. They do survive the son and the um, mom. Judy, the daughter of the Needings, becomes concerned when her parents don't show up for breakfast at the Toasted Bun in Glendale. I did look that place up. It's just a diner. It's still there? Uh, here's what I found out. That was a very long-standing Glendale diner that was around forever. Closed down, and then like 10 years ago, someone reopened it. Oh. And like they like refurbished it. But it's a basic breakfast place, like hash browns and eggs and toast and like stuff like that. It sounded pretty good. So they're supposed to meet there. Her mom and dad obviously don't show up. She goes to their home and discovers their bodies. At this point, Ramirez is back at the Cecil Hotel, feeling more invincible than ever, certain that Satan is protecting him. Now, Creel and Salerno don't find out about these attacks until days later. No one fucking contacts them. Salerno recalls being particularly irked by Glendale police because during the Hillside Strangler case, they pulled this bullshit with him as well. So he's like not surprised they're being fucking dicks again. They interview Samid, who made a new sketch that was given to the press. And this was now an international story. The press were there from all over the world to get all of the salacious details about this Night Stalker killer. The good aspect of this was that 
Um, at this point, now police departments were being very fucking cooperative because people were like, fucking get this guy, like solve this fucking case. So they're getting their asses reamed and they're like, shit, we need to cooperate now, like fucking finally. On August 6, 1985, Ramirez drives to Northridge and breaks into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. He creeps into the bedroom and startles the wife, Virginia, who is 27, and shoots her in the face with a 25 um, caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shoots Chris in the neck and attempts to flee because Chris starts fighting back, who, and he also avoids being shot two more times during this struggle. But Ramirez gets the fuck out of there, and the couple survive their injuries. I just want to reiterate to our listeners who aren't from Los Angeles that this guy's driving some very far distances. Yeah. Like, they're all on the outskirts, like very far north, like east. very far east. Like they're not in central LA. All of this stuff is sort of the periphery of LA. Uh, but they're all far. Like these are far drives. Like Northridge is far from Monterey Park. That's like deep in the valley. Yeah. Yeah. And then Glendale is like east of here where we are now. Glendale is like the closest North- to where we are. It's the closest to where we are yeah. now. And like, I mean, but he's driving these very far distances. Right. So he's also starting to get sloppy. Um, he does continue like another, like I mentioned earlier, the word bitch that's what the cops start when they start having more people surviving. They start hearing more details about his the way he acts, the things he says, and stuff like that. Um, and he's basically used this word "bitch" on every surviving victim in some way or the other. Salerno accidentally makes a personal attack on the night doctor in an interview after this Peterson case where he ran away when the husband fought back. He says the slacker showed his I'm sorry, the stalker showed his true colors, meaning he was a coward. And Ramirez saw this quote and was furious. And Salerno regretted saying it, but it was said in a moment of like not thinking. On August 8th, 1985, he drives to Diamond Bar, California, which is very far east, and chooses the home of Sakina Abawath, who is 27, and her husband Elias, who is um, 31. Sometime after 2.30 a.m., he enters the house, goes into the master bedroom, kills the husband instantly as he is sleeping. He handcuffs and beats Sakina while forcing her to find the family jewelry. He also rapes her. He repeatedly demands once again that she swear on Satan, that she's not hiding any other um, things from him. Uh, When the couple's three-year-old son enters the bedroom, Ramirez ties him up and continues to rape the mom in front of the child. After Ramirez leaves the home, she unties her son and sends him to the neighbors for help. Can you imagine oh a three-year-old God. showing up on your door with that kind of fucking information? Ugh. It's so awful. So this is actually finally the case that sends Carrillo's wife over the edge. She leaves with the kids to go stay with her parents. I think they mentioned that in the documentary. Mm-hmm. He's called to the house uh, at this point. Everyone's like, yeah, this is the stalker. It's kind of crazy how many cases it took for people to get on board with this. There is now an $80,000 reward, and all of Richard's sleazy friends begin eyeing him suspiciously. One is named Jesse Perez, and he finally takes the initiative and calls in a tip. But Richard wasn't taking any chances. He hightails it out of L.A. with a stolen car, driving to San Francisco, and setting up residence in the Tenderloin District, which we all know (laughs) is... Not the best area of well, San Francisco. I'm oh, sure it's probably better now. I'm sure now the rents are astronomical. But the, back it, in the day, yes. that was sort of the kind of 
the similar area to where he was staying in downtown LA. Look, when probably. I was in high school, you could get Oxy there easily. Oh, really? And heroin, yeah. I remember when I first went to San Francisco when someone mentioned the Tenderloin, I was like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> it was, look, when I was growing up, in that area, it was it was like not a good area. Yeah, but now I'm sure they've gentrified the fuck out of it. Oh, I'm. Ap- there's no way. Yeah, it's not, and it's probably cool. Like we live in the Tenderloin. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, uh, don't even get me started. But that's where we're gonna leave off. Oh, my we'll get gosh. into his San Francisco days next, and everything else. Obviously, the thing that I always like forget about this case is how close all of these murders were to each other. Oh, yeah. Like, he did not wait years between murders. No, it was like that Jenny Vincal, and then he waited a year. But this summer, he did them all, and it was literally, like, sometimes multiple in a day. But they were, like, every month or every few weeks happening. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously the concentration of it, I think, is what set everyone in a state of terror. Right. uh, Because it was just happening all the time. The summer of 85 in Los Angeles must have been terrifying. It was probably similar to, like, summer summer of Sam, like, that... Is that what it's called? Summer of Sam? No. That's the movie. That's the movie. (laughs) I was like, that doesn't sound right, but it's also familiar. Well, whenever David Berkowitz was on his spree. Yeah. Like when multiple killings are happening and it's so random, everyone's like, it could be me. They're on alert. Yeah. They're on alert. And that was definitely the case this summer. And like in the documentary, they have news clips of people buying guns and learning how to shoot and taking self-defense classes. And yeah. like, it was like a thing that was everyone was doing. I would love to hear from our listeners who were in Los Angeles and remember the summer of 1985. Yeah. Do you have any stories from that summer? Do you Did your parents tell you to yeah. lock your doors? Did yeah. you tell your kids to lock their... Like, Definitely send them in and we can tell them on the mini night this week. Yeah. Those would be great. Email us, hollywoodcrimescene at gmail.com if you remember the summer in Los Angeles in 1985. That's right. And this was right before, wait, when were the Olympics? 84. 84. So this is like right after the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, interesting. Also a year before I was born. What was 80? Okay. That, another important milestone. Another, I'm just saying. <laughs> Look, maybe that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, okay. All so right. next week we have more. Yes, we do. Uh, bye. Well, bye.